This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 25. And as you make your way to the 25th chapter of Job, I want to take some time to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the bulk of this book is actually centered around the controversial conversation that took place between a man named Job and his three friends, namely Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. After spending seven uh, days together, sitting in silence, Job then spoke first as he cursed the day of his birth. And then after you know, listening to Job sharing his sorrow about the situation that he was suffering, well, Job's friends, they began to take their turns sharing their perspectives regarding uh, what they thought to be the reason for Job's situation. And while they were all convinced that God was punishing Job for some sort of unrepentant sin in his life, Job continued to maintain his own innocence as he responded to the unfounded allegations of his three friends. Well, it's here in our text tonight where we find his friend named Bildad. He's now presenting his third and his final accusation. And as we consider the brevity of this chapter, well, it seems to me that he was exhausted with the conversation. I think that he was just fed up and done with it all. He's probably thinking, well, Job's not going to listen to me, so, so why continue on? Rather than trying to convince Job that he needed to repent, Bildad summed up his position and he did this by focusing on two truths that he probably thought all, all four men could agree upon. And so he's probably just kind of wrapping up the conversation with a, hey, let's just all you know, find something that we can agree with. And, and the first truth that Bildad affirmed here in this final statement of his, well, it's that God is sovereign over his creation. And then the second truth that Bildad affirmed here in our text tonight well, it's that mortal humans are unrighteous sinners who are comparable to unclean insects, you know, uh, in comparison to God, that is. Well, with this as the focus, we're going to spend our time tonight considering the truth of these two propositions. And not only that, but we're also going to take some time to consider the solution that our Savior has provided so that unrighteous sinners can be saved from the righteous punishment that we deserve. Well, with this as the focus, if you would, let's consider the way that Bildad concludes this conversation with Job. If you would look with me here at the 25th chapter of Job, we're going to begin our study there at verse 1. Here we read, Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. Now, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Bildad. He's addressing the complaints that Job had presented during his defense to Eliphaz. And I'll remind you, it was back in the beginning of chapter 23. That's where Job declared, my complaint today is still a bitter one, and I try hard not to groan aloud. If only I knew where to find God, I would go to his court. I would lay out my case and present my arguments. Now from this, we're reminded of the fact that Job, well, he was still thinking that the Lord was the one who was punishing him and without a just cause. And so he just wanted to know where the throne of God was so that he could go and present his arguments to the Lord. And with that being the case, you know, you know, Job imagined himself, you know, standing before the Almighty. He imagined himself presenting his long list of complaints. And then he thought, you know, that, that God would be like, oh yeah, Job, you're right, you know, and, and I've been blowing it. 
Well, in, resp- in response to this vain imagination, you know, Bildad reminds Job that God is the one who actually has dominion over his creation. And, you know, to better understand what Bildad was saying here, well, it'll help you to know that the word dominion found there in verse 2, it's translated from a Hebrew word which refers to the supreme authority of God's sovereignty. You know, Job is imagining himself carrying on this conversation with God where, where God then, you know, agrees with Job and Bildad saying, no, no, it ain't going to go down that way. It's not going to go down that way because God is the one with dominion over his creation. He's the one with supreme authority uh, and, and sovereignty over everything. And, and listen, the same word that's translated dominion, well, it's a word that was used in reference to God's divine right to rule over the kingdoms of the earth. And in order to better understand the meaning of this word, I want to consider a, a, a few times that this word is used throughout the Psalms. You see, it's in the 89th Psalm where we find Ethan the Ezraite. He's singing the praises of our creator, and he does this by declaring, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea when its waves rise. You still them. Now that word rule in in verse 9 there, it's translated from the same Hebrew word, which was rendered dominion back in Job chapter 25. And so we see here that God has dominion. He has divine dominion over the oceans as he rules the raging sea. Sorry, Aquaman, but uh, God actually has dominion over the sea. And and we see this playing out uh, in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as he actually calms the waves for his disciples. But we also find the same Hebrew word translated dominion in Psalm 22. There King David declares, For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. That word rules, well, it's also translated from the same word that Bildad used here in our text tonight, which is translated dominion. So the dominion of the Lord, it not only refers to his right to rule over his creation, like the oceans and the waves, But the same word is also uh, used in reference to his divine dominion over all the nations of the earth. We find the same Hebrew word again in the 103rd 103rd Psalm. Uh, That's where King David uses uh, this Hebrew word to describe the Lord's sovereignty over everything. By declaring this, he says, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you ministers of his who do his pleasure. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Christian, listen, the Lord is not only ruling and reigning over the raging seas. And and he's not only ruling over the kingdoms of every nation, but he also has divine dominion over all of the heavenly realms as he rules and reigns over the angelic beings that he's created. I like the way that Jude summed it up in his little epistle where he declares this, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. According to Jude, God is our Savior who alone has everlasting dominion over everything. And what this means is that he alone has the power to rule and reign over the entirety of his creation. 
Paul also confirmed this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where he describes God uh, as the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Now those words, everlasting power, they can also be rendered eternal dominion. Eternal dominion. That's what God has over his creation. And from this we can see then that Bildad was correct when he declared in Job 25 verse 2, dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation render this verse. They put it like this. God is powerful and dreadful. He enforces peace in the heavens. In other words, God is absolutely sovereign over the entirety of his creation. And with that being the case, those who want to be wise, well, they'll develop a respectful or a reverent fear of the one who preserves order in the heaven of heavens. You know, know, God not only rules and reigns uh, over his creation here in the universe in which we exist, but he rules in the heavens and the heavens of heavens. He rules everywhere. You could just say, God rules. God rules. He has dominion over everything. I like the way that King Solomon put it in Proverbs chapter 1. It's verse 7 where he declares... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. In other words, those who truly want to know this this God who has divine dominion over everything, those who really want to know the mysteries of God's will, well, they must begin with a reverent respect of the one who has dominion over his creation. If you're compiling a list like Job and thinking, well, I'm going to stand before God one day and I'm going to say, you know, what, what, what were you thinking, God, when you allowed this? Or what were you thinking, God, when you did that? That's not a respectful fear of God. That's not respectful fear. No, that's not reverence for the dominion of our creator. And, and listen, if, if you want to have true knowledge about who God is and what his plan is, you have to come before him humbly. God rejects the proud but gives grace to the humble. Solomon expands on this in Proverbs chapter 9. It's verse 10 where he declares, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Listen, those who want to develop the wisdom that we need so that we can live a life that's truly pleasing to the Lord... Well, we must first develop a reverent respect for the one who has dominion over our lives. Wisdom isn't based on, well, I have this feeling, or I had this gut feeling, or I had this idea or opinion, and so I'm going to roll with it. No, no, no. If you really want to have wisdom, then humble yourself and come before the Lord and say, Lord, you teach me wisdom. You give me understanding. And listen, he's given us his word so that we can gain that information. So long as we would simply receive it in all humility. As we consider how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, listen, it's in contrast to this that those who fail to develop a, respect, a respectful fear of the Lord, they will also fail to develop a proper understanding of our Creator. This is precisely the point that Paul is making in Romans chapter 1. 
It's there where Paul declares this. He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Christian, listen, those who fail to acknowledge God's dominion over his creation, well, these people end up embracing the foolish beliefs that lead them to worship the creation rather than the creator. If we won't humbly acknowledge God's dominion over his creation, it's not our creation, it's not your creation, it's not my creation, it's God's creation. And therefore, we would do well to humbly come before the Lord and acknowledge his dominion over the entirety of his creation. And it's sad to say that those who won't, well, they become you know, foolish in their thoughts, all the while professing themselves to be wise. This is exactly what we see happening here in the world today as more and more people turn away from the true and living Lord and begin worshiping and serving the creation. It's so just normal now to just see people worshiping the creation. Some people, well, they worship their favorite musicians. They think, oh, this, this guitarist is God, you know. No, no. No, they just learned how to play a guitar. That doesn't make them God. And yet, you know, how many people are bowing down before their American idols because they wrote the best song in the world? Others are worshiping their favorite athlete or their favorite actor or, or their favorite activist, whoever it is. There are those who have placed their pet on a pedestal. You know, some people you know, have put pets, you know, above people. And, and not only that, but they've put their pet above God. You know, well, I can't come to church because I've got a pet to take care of. Really? You can't go to church because of, because of an animal that will be fine at home by themselves? Put them in the backyard. Throw some food out there. They'll be fine. We need to put God above our pets. Others are serving the false idol Gaia as they serve the false god of climate change. Listen, I don't, I don't think that we should be destructive to our planet any more than, than you know, it needs to be, but we've been given dominion over this earth, and I know how it all ends, and it doesn't end with climate change. It ends with the elements burning with fervent heat because God brings an end to idolatry. Let's not forget about those who elevate their families above the Lord, and this is oftentimes true in the church. You know, people oftentimes put their kids above God. Well, I, got, you know, I can't go to church. I, I've got soccer and baseball, and, and I've got all the ballet and dancing and all, all these sorts of things, so God's got to be on the back burner so that I can make sure that my kid has everything they ever dreamed about. Well, how do you know that's God's plan for you? How, how do you know that's God's plan for your child? You've got to put God first in order to have the wisdom that you need for then serving him in the way that he's calling you to. 
Maybe kids need to spend a little bit less time out on the sports field or on, or on the dance you know, uh, stage, and maybe a little bit more time learning how to serve the Lord in their church. Maybe that's what God wants for them. And, and yet, you know, it's easy to put our kids first, you know, put God on the back burner, or our spouse, or the desire for a spouse. We need to be careful. We need to seek God's wisdom and knowledge so that we know how to order our lives according to his leading because he's God. Knowing how easy it is for us to turn anything or anyone into our idol, I encourage you to remember that God alone has dominion over his creation. So the question is, are you allowing him to have dominion over your heart? Are you allowing God to be the ruler of your life? If you really want to walk in the wisdom of the Lord, we must make sure that we are fearfully submitting ourselves to the everlasting divine dominion of our creator. With this as the goal, you might like to know that those who walk in the fear of the Lord, well, they don't need to fear anything else. If you're walking in the fear of the Lord, then you don't have to fear anything else. And to prove my point, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 25. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 3, here Bildad asks, Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not rise? Now here in this verse we find Bildad, he's continuing to elaborate upon the dominion of the Lord. And he begins here by asking if anybody was able to count the number of angels in the Lord's armies. I know that at some point in time theologians were debating about how many angels could stand on the head of a pen, which is just simply ridiculous. It's five. But... uh, I don't know. (laughs) But here Bildad is asking what I believe to be a really cool question. How many angels are in God's armies? Not even his army, but his armies, plural. Do you know, are you able to count the, the number of angels in God's armies? And the answer is no, we have no clue how many angels are enrolled in the Lord's army. And, and yet there should be no doubt that the angels uh, in the armies there in heaven include a vast amount of incredibly beautiful beings who themselves are living in submission to the Lord. Case in point, it's in Second Kings chapter 6 where we learn about the days when the king of Syria sent horses and chariots to, to, uh, you know, and, and even a great army. Uh, to capture the prophet Elisha because Elisha uh, was in touch with the Lord and was you know, taking information that the Lord was revealing about uh, the king of Syria. And, and so Elisha was receiving this intel about their you know, sneak attacks and, and delivering it to the king of Israel. And so you know, the, uh, the king of Syria was getting frustrated and came to find out that uh, Elisha is the guy who is giving away all their secrets. And so you know, the king of Syria sends the chariots and the horses and a great army to go and capture Elisha And it was early in the morning when Elisha's servant saw the Syrian army surrounding the entire city. And it was with a heart filled with fear that he immediately informed Elisha about the situation that was happening outside with all the soldiers. And in response, here's what the prophet Elisha declares. Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And at that point in time, Elisha's servant was like, what are you talking about, Willis? All he could see were Syrian soldiers. And so in verse 17, Elisha prays and says, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire 
all around Elisha. From this, we can see that the Syrian army, which was described in 2 Kings as being great, it was a great army, well, that great Syrian army was surrounded by an even greater number of heavenly horses and chariots of fire. And while we aren't given a specific number, what we do know is that the Lord was able to send a, a host of heavenly soldiers that was greater than the great Syrian army. And so Elisha's right. Hey, you, you, don't, have, you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear these, these Syrian soldiers. You don't have to fear uh, this full army, this great army that has come to surround you. You don't have to be afraid of it if you're walking in the will of the Lord. If you're walking in the fear of God, you don't have to fear the entirety of the Syrian army. Isn't that incredible? I'm reminded of the day when, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus right before he was crucified. And in response, Peter stepped forward to defend the Lord and he swung the sword at the servant of the high priest and cut his ear off. And, and that's when the Lord Jesus, he, he rebuked Peter by declaring this. He says, put your sword in its place where all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How incredible is that? Jesus was saying, this isn't the time to fight. This, is, this isn't the time to start swinging swords. If I, if I wanted to be delivered from this situation, I would just ask the father to send 12 legions of angels. That word legion, well, it's a term that originated with the Roman military, and it was used in reference to a troop of soldiers that included anywhere from 3,000 to 6,000 men. And so at the very least here, Jesus here is referring to 36,000 angels. Not only that, but we should also notice that the Lord Jesus also assures the apostle Peter that his heavenly father was able to send more than 12 legions of angels. So not just 12 legions of angels, but more than that. Now, this still doesn't tell us how many angels there are in the Lord's armies. But we can be certain that it's more than any human army can handle. It's in Hebrews 12 where Paul informs us that there's an innumerable company of angels there in heavenly Jerusalem. There's an innumerable company of angels. How many is that? I don't know. Like I have a hard time getting past the triple digits, right? So an innumerable amount, uh, amount you're, you're not even going to be able to count it. And that's what Bildad is saying here in our text tonight as he encourages Job to realize that it's impossible to count the total number of the angels that the Lord has in his armies. And with that being the case, well, we can rest assured that the armies of this world will fail to stop the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a couple of battles that we find in, in the prophetic word of God which are going to play out that lead up eventually to the battle of Armageddon. And, and I think this is what the psalmist is writing about here in Psalm chapter 2, is verses 1 through 4, where the psalmist asks, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh the Lord shall hold them in derision. From this, we can see that those who 
eventually gather together for the battle of Armageddon, well, they're going to quickly realize that they're fighting against the God who commands an innumerable army of angels. And, and not even that the angels are going to need to fight because, you know, when we study the invasion of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 19, it's the sword of God that's coming out of his mouth that just wipes out those, those armies there in the valley of Megiddo. But we can rest with great assurance in knowing that greater is he who's in us than he's who's in the world. And the God in heaven who has dominion over his creation is also the commander over innumerable angels who are stationed in various armies. And so the Lord is simply going to laugh at those who try to stop the second coming of Jesus Christ. At the same time, we must not fail to realize that the Lord has revealed the light of his salvation to every single person so that they might escape the judgment that will eventually come upon this planet. Now, I want to consider how Bildad puts it here in verse 3. Here again he asks, Is there any number to his armies upon whom does his light not rise? Now here in the second half of, of, the, of this verse here, we find Bildad, he's referring to the common grace of God. Just to be clear, when we talk about the common grace of God, we're talking about the blessings and the benefits that are enjoyed by both believers and unbelievers. I like the way that Jesus explains it in Matthew chapter 5. It's verse 45 where he informs us the Father makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. This is the common grace of God that allows both believers and unbelievers alike to enjoy sunsets on the beach and snowy days in the mountains. Christians and non-Christians both enjoy savory food and sweets. You know, there's a common grace that God has provided to people whether they believe in him or not. As a matter of fact, the atheist who, who you know, pronounces his disbelief of God is actually taking the very breath that God gives them to deny the God who created them. This is common grace, grace that God has poured out on every person regardless of whether they believe in him or not. What's even more important is that God the Father sent the, the light of the Lord Jesus into this world so that sinners might see the light of the truth by which we can be saved. This light has come into the world and, and, and the light of the Lord has, has been shown to all people. And knowing that sinners prefer spiritual darkness rather than the light of the Lord, well, that's why the Father then also sent the Holy Spirit to convict the world of sin and righteousness, and judgment, so that every person has the same opportunity to be saved. And this is why Paul says back in Romans 1 that they're going to be without excuse. If they find themselves at the great white judgment seat of Jesus Christ being condemned for all their sins, they will have no excuse because they've seen the light of the Lord and the Holy Spirit has convicted them of their sins and given them the opportunity to get saved, and they reject it anyway. Much like the light of our sun, which shines on every person on this planet, the spiritual light of the Son of God has been cast upon every person through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And in this way, every sinner, no matter where they are, the, the, the person on the deserted island, 
you know, who never had a Bible in their hand, they still have the light of the Lord as the Holy Spirit comes and convicts them of their sins and that they would simply humbly receive the truth that the Holy Spirit is bringing into their hearts, then the Lord is going to reveal himself to them. And as the Lord reveals the plan of salvation to every person who wants to, to receive it, well, that's, that's when they're able to put their faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ by which we're saved. In order to further explain my point here, I want to consider the concern that Bildad raised here in the final verses of this chapter. You would look with me there beginning at verse 4 because here Bildad asks, how then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? If even the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm? Now here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Bildad, he's shifting his attention from the divine dominion of God to the fallen state of those who have been born under the curse of original sin. And just to be clear, the curse of original sin was the sentence that the Lord issued there in the Garden of Eden shortly after Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord by eating the forbidden fruit. It was at that point in time when our universe was placed under the curse uh, which has affected everything from people to plants to planets, whatever it is. Everything has been affected by the curse. Paul explains it best in Romans chapter 8 where he declares, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Simply put, everything within our universe was affected by the, by the original sin of Adam and Eve. And, and as a result, the whole creation has been cursed. The entirety of the creation has been cursed, and it's for this reason that entropy is now affecting everything, including the earth and the moon and all the stars, and everything's been affected by the curse. I like the way the, that Bildad puts it here when he connects the dots here between the diminishing light of the moon and the impure light from the stars. And he, con he connects the dots between that and the fallen state of man that has left us comparable to unclean maggots when compared to the holiness and the righteousness of God. I like the way that Paul describes the fallen state of the human race. It's in Romans chapter 3 where he declares this. We have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
As we consider this description of the state of humanity, uh, well, the nightly news will back up what, what Paul was saying there. It's easy to go out and destroy. It's easy to go out and curse. It's easy to go out and, and be a problem rather than a solution. It's easy for us. Why? Well, because none of us are righteous. And in light of this description, we can see that the descendants of Adam and Eve are all unrighteous, and from the very moment of conception, at the moment of conception, the, the curse of original sin is passed on uh, you know, through procreation. At the moment of conception, the curse of original sin was imputed to our spiritual account. And I get it, some people believe that you know, we're born good and we're good people and these sorts of things, and, and yet, I mean, just, just go check out the prison system. Just, just consider how much money we're spending on the prison system, and 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 you know this in in, in a in a society that uh, finds it very easy to just to, to just let criminals out. We are clearly born spiritually dead, separated from God, even enemies of God, because of the stain of original sin. That being the case, Bildad presented the right question back in verse 4 where he asks this, how then can man be righteous before God or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? Great question. It's an excellent question. How can sinners like us be made righteous before God? How can those who are born under the curse be made right with God? How can the unrighteous be made righteous so that we can be saved from the righteous wrath that we deserve? And, and, you know, the Sunday school answer is what? Jesus. Jesus. I like the way that Paul explains it as he gets a little bit deeper into the theology of this answer. It's Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Here Paul declares, as through one man's offense, speaking of Adam, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act. Who's that? Jesus. Even through the the righteous act of Jesus, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as... Sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. More simply put, those who trust in Jesus Christ, we've been set free from the curse. And the reason why? Well, it's because the Lord Jesus has not only settled our sin debt when he received the punishment that we deserve there on the cross, but then he goes on to impute his righteousness into the spiritual account of those who trust in him. And in this way, the obedience of Jesus enables born-again believers now to be made righteous. I like the way that Paul explains it. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Here Paul declares, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself 
through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God for he, the Father, made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How incredible is that? The Lord Jesus bore our sins there on the cross where he received the punishment that we deserve so that he can remain just but then become the justifier of those who trust in him. And now those who trust in the sacrifice of our Savior are then made positionally perfect because the righteousness of our Redeemer has been imputed to the spiritual account of every Christian. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus took his righteousness and imputed that into your account. And as a result, we are made positionally perfect in Christ. We become new creations in Christ Jesus. At the same time, it's important for us to realize that we're still waiting for the final act of our redemption, which is going to happen at the time of our resurrection. I want to consider again how Paul put put this back in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, where he declares, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. Not only that... But we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. From this, we can see that the born again believer who has become a new creation in Christ Jesus, well, we're still waiting for the finality of our adoption. We've been adopted, but then there's this final act of our adoption when the Lord takes the purchased possession, which is us, and and what were we purchased with? The blood of Jesus Christ. And there's coming a day when the purchased possession will then enter into the final stage of our redemption, which is what? The resurrection. A brand new body. You guys excited about that? I know I am. I like the way that Paul explained it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's verses 50 through 54. There he declares, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Christian, listen, this mortal body is still suffering under the corruption of the curse. And according to Paul, This body, which is made of flesh and blood, it cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And just think about that in an earthly sense. Can you go and live in the ocean? 
Can, can, is your body equipped and set up to live under, under, underwater? It's not. We can't breathe water, you know. We get all wrinkly. Like you, you can't live underwater. Your body's not set up for that. Well, in a similar sort of way, your body's not set up to dwell in heaven either. This flesh and blood can't exist in heavenly places like that. That being the case, we can rejoice in knowing that we're going to receive a new body, which is a resurrected body. It's a spiritual body. It's a body that's set up so that we can dwell in the presence of the Lord. And knowing that there's coming a day when those who have been made positionally perfect by faith in Jesus Christ, well, we will also receive a resurrected body which is free from the corruption of the curse. At this point in time, we're still you know, wrestling with that, and then that's why Paul tells us to walk in this spirit so that we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But there's coming a point in time when death will be swallowed up in victory as we receive our resurrected body a body that we will enjoy forevermore. With that, you know, when it comes to Bildad's question, how can we be made righteous? Well, the answer is simply by faith in Jesus Christ. It's by faith in Jesus Christ that we are made righteous, and that apart from the works of the law. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But by faith in Jesus Christ, according to the faith and the example of Abraham, those who trust in the Lord and those who rest in his finished work are made righteous because it's his gift of grace that he extends to those who trust in him. It's by faith in Jesus Christ that we're made righteous apart from the works of the law. And as we continue to look forward to the redemption of our bodies, I encourage you to remember that the righteousness of the Lord is imputed to those who submit themselves to the divine dominion of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.